welcome to the Tennis IQ Podcast. I'm Josh Berger. And I'm Brian Lomax. And we have a really great conversation for all of you to listen into today. Um, our guest is David Samuel. Dave is a world prominent tennis coach based in the UK, who's coached dozens of professional players and international junior players. He's also the author of the book Locker Room Power, Building the Mind of an Athlete, as well as the founder of Mindset College, an online course designed to help athletes and others transform their fears and doubts into a winning mindset. So in this conversation, Josh and I talked to Dave about what locker room power is, how to develop it, and how to apply it in competition. And this includes the concept of mentally unsettling the opponent and using courage as a virtue. Overall, I think you'll find that Dave shares a lot of wisdom from his experiences as a player and coach that I think anyone listening to this episode will come away with some new and helpful perspectives that can be applied to tennis and life. So with that, we hope that you enjoy our conversation with David Samuel. David Samuel, want to welcome you to the Tennis IQ podcast. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. So we had a previous guest on our podcast some some months ago, Marius Bernard, and he talked to us about your book, Locker Room Power, Building the Mind of an Athlete. And, um, you know, Josh and I both went out, got this book and just really, really great stuff. And I can't wait to dive into a lot of this with you because I think it's going to be extremely helpful for the Tennis IQ podcast audience but before we do that, would love for you to you know give us a brief introduction to you, how you got involved with the sport of tennis and coaching, um, and you know where how that's led you to where you are today. Uh, yeah, I mean, I grew up in South Africa, and uh, we had a, a court in our backyard. Uh, all my older sisters played, so uh, you know I actually don't remember not being able to hit a tennis ball. Uh, I can't remember not. I do remember my first tournament and losing seven love. I don't know what, I think it was best of seven games. And <laughs> to a guy called Carsten Pop, who actually lives in California now. And uh, I lost seven love to him. And then uh, I remember, I think I was probably about seven or eight years old. And then uh, in the under 12s, I remember I, I beat him pretty comfortably. So I was pretty happy with that. But, yeah, then I started playing tournaments. I was one of the best juniors in South Africa all the way through. Uh, And then I got recruited to play for the University of Texas by Kevin Curran, uh, who was a a South African and obviously made finals at Wimbledon. And I played a year at Texas. Uh, I I wasn't uh, that enamored uh, with the coach. And uh, two of my friends got recruited to North Texas uh, and a guy called, uh, a coach called A.G. Longoria, who had built the Pan American program to number seven in the nation. And uh, he got recruited by North Texas. We were pushing at that time to get in the Southwest Conference. And, uh, and he, he had done it on foreign players, basically, at Pan American. So he recruited all three of us, actually. And I transferred to North Texas and I was able to do that because they weren't yet in the Southwest Conference, which they were pushing to become part of. And, uh, you know, we, we were a good team. We were top 25 in the nation. Uh, but unfortunately for my uh, uh, senior year, 
the funding just dried up and the coach uh, left and the, the athletic director left in a cloud and uh, and they didn't make the Southwest Conference. So my senior year wasn't the, the greatest, but but I had, uh, 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 you know, two fabulous, fabulous years there as well. Uh, and then I went and played pro tennis and, and the only way I could survive in pro tennis was to play a lot of money tournaments in Europe. Um, you know, France, Germany, Belgium, and Holland. And then I got a club contract to play for a club in Holland, which was kind of a mainstay of my income. And then I would save money and then go pay. In those days, satellites, they didn't have futures. They were five weeks to get your points. Uh, there weren't very many challenges at all. You can make top 100 on futures. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, But it would drive you a bit balmy. Uh, and um, yeah, and then basically I got to a point of playing satellites, uh, you know, 600 ranking and and uh, a, a lot higher in doubles and just thought, you know what, what am I doing? I make all of this money all the time playing money tournaments and, and for the Dutch club, and then I blow it all playing satellites, trying to get the, the ranking going all the time. Uh, if you're a professional tennis player, play professional tennis for money. So what I did is for uh, about nine months, I just played as many ATP qualifying events as I could uh, and, and, and had, you know, a, a good time doing that. But and said, see, if I don't break through and, my, and I'll, you know, I'll, my ranking goes down, then I'll, I'll just play for money, which is that, that's, you know, what happened. And, uh, and I'd say I was a professional tennis player who played, you know, money tournaments and, and for, for, for a Dutch club. And then the Dutch club called me. I remember uh, I had one more bash at, uh, at, at, at pro tennis. And, and they called me and said, look, this summer, instead of just coming and playing for the club, would you like to be player coach for the first three teams? And spend the summer with us. You can still go play your tournaments uh, when 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 there's not club matches on the weekend. Um, and and so I thought, oh yeah, that sounds good. And the, the money was even better, so so I did it, and uh, I, I really enjoyed it. And then the, they asked me back the second year to do the same thing, but also to coach uh, their two junior teams as well. And then they offered me the pro shop, but they had somebody there who could run it for me. And, uh, and I said, okay. And that year uh, we became champions of Holland. Uh, so I was playing and, and coaching at the same time. And uh, it, it, it was a great time. And then there was a girl in the team who was very good. She was uh, 18 years old. And her father, you know, had... Uh, uh, enough money to to put her on tour and asked me if I would uh, in the winter go on tour with her before you know and then come back and she'd play for the club again and stuff so that winter I I started uh, touring around with her um, and, and played a little bit myself as well and then uh, you know that that kind of grew so I started you know doing the Dutch club and coaching her on tour and, and, you know, start to really enjoy the coaching side. Uh, but I, I don't say I'd ever kind of 
retired from tennis. Uh, I just, you know, carried on playing money tournaments when I could. I remember one time we were playing a grass court tournament and, and unfortunately they scheduled me at the same time as her and she, and she was playing the court next to me, which was an absolute nightmare because I really needed to be watching her. So, and I, at, at that point, I thought, no, I can't play any more tournaments at the same time uh, as her. But it led me into coaching. And then the, the Dutch club, unfortunately, didn't have any indoor courts. And they asked for planning permission, didn't get it. Uh, and there was an indoor centre. My wife is English, so I'd moved to England, uh, in, you know, in the, in the winter months. And, uh, you know, practice. And they, they had... Uh, effectively the same as the world team tennis that you have in the States for two years, they had it in the UK and I captained the Manchester team. So I got quite well known there as, you know, you know, the best player in the area. And, uh, and that was also great fun. And that indoor club asked me if I'd start, you know, do some coaching there. And then the lawn tennis association came and said, We've got the center of excellence that we do in the evenings twice a week. Will you come and help with that? And, uh, and so that side started to grow and I decided to, to, to quit the Dutch club because it was only a summer job anyway and, and got more seriously into coaching uh, in the UK. And, and from then on, uh, very quickly, uh, I did well with players and uh, ended up on tour with players. And I've been there ever since, so it's over 30 years. Yeah. Well, that's a fantastic story. I love that. And uh, sort of the – yeah, you didn't really retire from tennis. You just sort of slowly transitioned from player yeah. to coach, and it even overlapped. You know, you don't often hear that story. Yeah, I just uh, – yeah, I think uh, the, the good thing about that is I, don't, I, I didn't go through what I call a period of mourning. Yeah. Most players, when they retire, they they have a, a really tough sort of year or two where they look at all the results and everything like that. But I was easing down, you know, and, and still playing and, and didn't really have that period. It just, the coaching became, you know, more about the, obviously, the players and, and I just didn't have the time to play. Uh, but, you know, I'd say into my 40s, I was still hitting with the players a lot. Uh, and then, and then you know, you just get fat and lazy. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, and so, yeah, it's slowly over time. It, 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 it just uh, no longer was. But I didn't really feel like, oh, I actually stopped playing tennis. Yeah, right. No, that's really cool. Before we get into the details of Locker Room Power, the book, um, what inspired you to write this? What, what inspired you to, you know, get this, this info out to the world? Um, yeah, that's a, that, that's a good question. I think it, it really came about uh, in, in the, the, the late 1990s. I, I started working with some of the best male players in, in Britain. And uh, I recognized something in them, in that at that time, you know, apart from Tim Henman, uh, everybody seemed to always come into every situation as an underdog. And I learned this actually on tour myself, 
because when I was playing, obviously Borg was the big thing, and then Wielander and uh, and then Edberg, and on tour the Swedes kind of had this aura about them, you know, so cool, calm, collected, you know, none of them shown any emotion out there. They had lots of good players, and they were very intimidating. And then uh, I uh, <laughs> I played doubles and roomed with a guy called Ulf Peterson, who was a very good player and had all of this on court. But in, in traveling with him, this guy was, you know, <laughs> a bit fruity and, and, and all over the shop. And, and, and it kind of broke a myth in my head that, that, you know, these are just normal guys who have their own problems and their own demons and everything like that, which I kind of, you know, didn't, didn't really realize. And that, and that broke a, a, a ceiling for me is that, uh, you know, all players have their issues and, and there's nobody who's, you know, perfect out there. And, and so, but I did notice it with the British players that they, at that point in time, they tend to buy into everybody else's locker room power. And as I said, come in as an underdog and feel like, you know, that, that, that they weren't good enough and that they had to play, you know, out of their minds or whatever to beat a, a lot of players. And uh, we, we started traveling. Uh, in fact, the first player that, that I, I, I did a lot with uh, at a high level was Andrew Richardson, who coached Raducanu uh, to, to this US Open title. And, and Flex, as we called him, was a, an extremely talented player. And, and one of the things that, that I'd speak to him about is, you know, I started calling it locker room power, that if, if, if people see you training hard and, and, and you're on a mission, that that actually creates a power. And, and instead of seeing the other players as being, you know, the guys who are, you know, maybe not just working harder, but something, you know, have something special about them or whatever, uh, it's, it's just not true. And, but you can create this aura for, for yourself. And then I, I, I worked with, you know, several others, Miles McLagan, Arvin Palmer, Barry Cowan, Martin Lee, and, you know, took them all to their career highest rankings and, and started working with uh, Jez Green, the physical trainer who went on to coach, train Andy Murray and, and Zverev. And, uh, and I actually coached him as a junior. And he came back after studying uh, sports science at Loughborough, which is a, a famous sports university in, in the UK, and said, look, I want to work with players. And I said, well, <laughs> yeah, I'm your answer, but I can't pay you a lot. But he, he took the risk and came with me and helped me with these players. And we talked to them a lot about because it, it seems obvious now, but I would, I would say we were the first people to really pioneer off-season training for tennis players. Uh, I mean, we, we got all wrong the first time. Uh, we had, <laughs> it was <laughs> poor Arvin, Marty and Barry on an off-season training block. 
And, you know, we, you know, Jess said, look, I need six weeks to really change these guys physically to really transform them. So we had them on a, a brutal training block for six weeks, no tennis. And then we started with the tennis and we did a couple of weeks of sort of tennis and, and a bit of training. And then we went to Florida, all, you know, they were all fired up and pumped because they were in the best shape of their lives and they couldn't play. <laughs> I mean, they'd been too long without really playing and they just couldn't play. So the first month after that training block was very, very difficult and, and slowly they got in swing of it. And basically they had a very good year after that. But we learned from that, that even in a training block, you know, players need to keep a feel of the ball. So, you know, we, we adjusted it to where, you know, training was the main thing, but for 45 minutes an hour a day, they would play some tennis. And I actually learned then that um, short and sharp, when you're talking about uh, technical training, short and sharp actually works brilliant. So in these like 30 to 45 minute little blocks, we do technical stuff because, of course, physically they were, you know, really shot because of all the training and do some really key technical stuff without them moving that much. And, and they picked it up pretty quick and it seemed to really and, – and, and from that point I realized that, you know, spending two hours on technique, no, no, no. Uh, you know, do the do – the, you know, talented players will pick up things pretty quick. And you can almost keep working at it till it breaks down, and then you know, then they 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 get nervous about it. And and actually, if you do it in short, sharp chunks, it doesn't mean that they they get it very quickly, but they haven't got it until you see it in a match. And that will take time. You know, different things take different amounts of time. But it was a very important lesson for me that you could teach people a lot in short space of time and they actually learn better that way. You could keep revisiting it if you didn't see it in matches and stuff, but they, they would get things actually very quick and they leave with a lot of confidence because the feel good factor was very high because they were succeeding very quickly at something. Uh, not that it stuck. I, I want, you know, <laughs> none of us are magicians, uh, but over time it would stick. And then suddenly you'd see it in a match and you go, ah, oh, beautiful. You know, because when when they can do it under pressure, then it, it, it's really in there and, and part of them. Um, so, yeah, and and we became known on the Challenger Tour especially uh, as basically the hardest working crew. I mean, we, we, we were doing the physical work, we we're doing the footwork training, and, and we're doing the tennis stuff. And they started to realize that they actually had locker room power and that other players were starting to fear them. And, and so, you know, that got me to think is that, you know, we all know this, you know, top players have an aura about them, you know, in any sport. And, and what is it, what does that do? And the best way I can explain it is, um, let's say, you know, you, you're going against, um, you know, Novak Djokovic and you go to the net, uh, say, you know, you go, you know, forehand line and in, and he hits a passing shot down the line and it's a good one. I think for that split second, a player will go, oh, no, because it's Novak. 
and that makes them a split second slow and suddenly they duff the volley or don't make the volley. Whereas if they're going against Joe Bloggs and they hit exactly the same shot, they don't hesitate at all and they just go and, you know, cut off maybe a tough volley but cut it off uh, because they're not nervous, you know. Or if you think on the football field when Ronaldo lines up for or, or Messi for a free kick, the goalkeeper's nervous, everybody's nervous. And when people are nervous, they're slower, they make mistakes. So there is a physical manifestation of locker room power where players don't perform as well against the, the players that have this aura. And, and that means that they have an advantage. And they know they have this advantage. As, and you know, there's a, many examples in the books where, you know, top athletes in all sports talk about the advantage that they have uh, and, and, and know about it. So what I felt like I could do was give this aura a name, which I called Locker Room Power, because that's what I've been using with the guys. And, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll start just writing some articles about it, which I did. And then suddenly I had a bunch of articles about it that I thought, you know what, if I put this together properly, it's actually a book. And that's how the book came about. And the hardest thing actually about the book was uh, the editing and getting the right order because I had a lot of this random stuff written down and, and, and notes from with the guys and everything like that. And, and then to get it in an order that kind of made sense and then to, you know, edit it to a way that it's, it becomes uh, easy to read. And, and I was very, very keen to not uh, put any fluff in there because originally the book was about 70 pages longer. And then uh, I read a book. I won't say which one it was, a very good book, but it, it did follow the thing like, you know, tell them what they need to know, <laughs> repeat what they need to know, and then tell them again what they need to know. And I thought, well, this is a great book if it was just, you know, 100, 150 pages shorter. And then I went back and looked at mine and thought, you know what, what doesn't need to be there? And, and so that's, so, you know, I wanted the book to be, you know, no more than sort of a two, two and a half hour read uh, and, and very to the point. So I hope you guys found it uh, that way. Absolutely. I thought it was, it was well organized. And yeah, right to the point. It was a it was a very enjoyable read, and and I kept noting throughout while reading it how it was in a in a nice progression. Because I you know I have a book as well, but it tends to be more like the random stuff, you know. And I didn't get as much help on organizing all of that, and so I really appreciated the way you you had put that together, David. So uh, I think you were successful. Yeah, and, and I'll say to you, if, if you've got a book, the hardest part is the editing. It really does, and, and the rewrites and stuff like that. But uh, but once I'd got my head in the fact that I wanted the book, I uh, uh, I was able to do that. But it, I suppose it was actually written over about five years. And then in 2019, I, I updated it. And now, subsequently, I've actually created an online course called Mindset College, which incorporates locker room power, but it's, it's got a lot more to it. It's a, it's a full, you know, 32-hour course. Uh, but it, it, it takes in other things outside of tennis, like judgment and comparison and, right. and you know, communication triangles and stuff like that. So 
you know, uh, it's 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 a far bigger uh, project. I know we definitely want to uh, to dive more into um, mindset college, um, but regarding uh, locker room power and for you know different athletes out there, uh, maybe not you know at the at the level of the the people referenced in the book, um, you know, at the club level, at the college level, um, or even at the, you know, lower ranks of the professional levels. Um, how can, how can athletes, uh, regardless of their level, help to, to build more of that, of that aura against their competition? Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a very good question that, and, and what I will say is locker room power exists at every single level. So, you know, when you play in a club, <laughs> there's the guy or the girl to be and, yep. and there's, you know, the club champion or, or, and, and they have some stuff that people fear. So I'd say the first step to building locker room power is to understand what your weapons are. When you know what your weapons are, then you have something to build upon that says, this is what opponents are going to fear. And, you know, it's not just a forehand or backhand or serve or volley. It's foot speed. It's mental strength. You know, you know, I love that, you know, often it's like, you know, the club hacker. Well, usually the club hacker is the best tennis player because they put the ball in the court and they put it in often awkward spots that people don't like. And because they make a lot of balls, they, they become a hacker. But the, the reality is a lot of hackers are, you know, pretty damn good tennis players. And, uh, and then, you know, if, if, if you want to be a more attacking player, you've got to know what it is in your arsenal that hurts people and, and the way to attack that's going to that's gonna hurt people and a way to attack that's going to beat the hacker. And, you know, if, if, if you're very good at, say, attacking the net, but you, you've got no overhead, then you better make sure that you learn how to hit an overhead at least, you know, pretty well. Because, you know, I say this, you, you, your weapons are your most important things because that's what creates a fear. Your weaknesses, don't worry about them unless they prevent you from using your weapons. And if they prevent you from using your weapons, then you need to strengthen them to the point that you can actually, you know, use your weapons. Uh, there's no point in having a great rocket launcher if, you know, if the tractor pulling it or whatever, or the truck that pulls it doesn't work and you can't actually get in position to, <laughs> to fire on the enemy. So, uh, you know, so the first step to building locker room power is to really identify a minimum of two strengths, two things that, that people would fear. Uh, the second thing about locker room power is to understand that the locker room is everywhere. It's, you know, it's, it's the, the, the restaurant, it's the, it's the locker room, it's the practice court, it's, you know, how you, how you conduct yourself everywhere in public. And people look at that. So if you say, yeah, I'm really serious about, you know, getting fit because if I get fit, my tennis is good and, 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 and then I know I can win. And you know, people see you hanging out at McDonald's a lot and, 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 and Burger King and, and all of these places and not really 
you know, doing a lot of training, but you say, yeah, no, I'm really getting fit. It's not believable. So you're not building locker room power. But if they see you suddenly starting to eat healthily, you know, out on runs and doing some training and, and being drilled by your coach and, and you, you start to create a mission around yourself. That is what we did with the, with the, the, the guys that, that we worked with Jez and I is we started to create an aura of, wow, these guys are working incredibly hard. And, you know, sometimes on purpose, we go out at seven in the morning, you know, uh, and, and be there before anybody arrives. So when they arrive, they just see you already finishing up. And, and that, you know, that becomes intimidating, especially if they're in a tough match with you. So, uh, and then, you know, the last thing that you need to be is actually good enough at the level that you're playing at. Because if all of this is great, but you do also have to at some point get results. Because people are not, you know, you could have a great mission going, be incredibly fit, know what your weapons are, and all of this and mentally, you know, feel like you're pretty tough. But if you never win a match, there's no fear there. So, so ultimately, all of this has got to lead to more winning. You know, and or when you do lose, it's it's a real scrap, and and people see that uh, that it, it's not an easy match, and and you know if they're gonna beat you, they're gonna have to suffer a little bit, and 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 then you know, and that's the formula of locker room power. You know, you, you have to have the desire to do the work. You know, you. You need to have a belief, and I, I, this is really important, and I'd say this is something that, that has evolved over since I wrote the book, is it's not, it's not really about having belief in yourself. It's having belief in your process. And the way I explain it is, you know, if you go to the gym and you can, let's say, squat, you know, 60 kilos and you want to get to 120, yeah. And, and you decide that every day you're going to put 120 on the bar and go positive thinking, come on, I can lift this. Come on, I can do it. Come on. And every day you do the same thing. You know, in a year's time, you still can't lift 120. But if you, you know, get a trainer on board and you get good technique and you go through a process of learning, you still don't believe that you can lift 120 because you're at 60. But over time, by the time you get to 110 and you've been through the process of getting stronger all the time, you have enormous belief in yourself that you're going to make 120. So is believing yourself the most important thing or believing in your process? And for me, I think actually if you believe in your process, you learn to believe in yourself because you get competent and good enough to, to, to believe in yourself. And uh, I don't know if you guys saw, but Liam Brody, who I work with, won his first challenger uh, yesterday. And uh, uh, it was his uh, ninth final. And, uh, you know, one of the things I said to him before he went on court is, you know, this is different from the other finals because you are now a good enough tennis player to to win this 
Whereas the other times you were a good tennis player who had gotten on a roll and gotten to a final, but were actually playing a player maybe that was better than you at that point in time. But now you are good enough. And, and if you're good enough and you play your game, you're going to be very difficult to beat. And I would say that his belief in himself yesterday was higher than the other finals because he knew how well he could play. Before, he also knew how well he could play, but he also knew it wasn't as good as he can now. So, you know, what gave him the belief yesterday or the greater belief yesterday, I would say that he was a better tennis player uh, than he was on the previous occasions. So it's, it's not just all about, you know, people say it's all in the head. At every level, it's all in the head. But you know, the you know the other analogy I give about that is 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 if you if you put someone, you know, Rafa Nadal five miles from the North Pole, in a in, in t-shirt and shorts, and say walk to the North Pole, in those conditions, he's he's going to die no matter how mentally tough he is. Now he might be so tough that he walks 150 meters before he dies. And a mentally weak person stands there and goes, oh, I'm going to die and dies on the spot. But the reality is if you don't have the equipment around you, the right equipment, you're not going to make it to the North Pole. You've got to have the right clothing and everything like that. And the same as, a, as an athlete and a tennis player, you need, to, you, you need to get better and better at what you do so you have the right equipment that's going to be robust enough at whatever level you're at to win at that level. And when you can win at a certain level, that's when you can make the jump to the next level. But again, when you get to the next level, you'll have to become even more robust in order to survive there. And, and that's the process that you have to go, th- go through. But if you believe in that process, that if you I'll just keep getting better, then, uh, then you know, you, at each level, you're going to get greater and greater locker room power. I think I like how you're mixing this. David, like, you know, essentially trusting the process leading to self-belief. And I think maybe even the transition stage there is like you're developing self-efficacy, this idea of, yes, I can, um, yes. developing more optimism along that. So I think that's really great because that's, that's stuff that's really grounded in, in, in sports psychology of like what we're trying to do and, and the idea of helping players to understand that they must trust their process so that they can go through this, which will then develop self-belief. I think this was a lot of what Marius actually talked about with us in on our podcast episode with him. So it, it's a nice tie-in. I also like your concept of weapons. Um, this reminds me of a concept that I like to use, which is called, uh, and it involves weapons, but it's helping people understand their competitive identity, which is your weapons plus their purpose. So in terms of how you use your weapons, and I think in your language, to unsettle the mind of your opponent. Um, That's correct. I might use say something similar, more about like mentally breaking your opponent, you know, which is a big fighter's mind type of thing. Um, talk a little bit about unsettling the mind of your of your opponent and, and why that's key to being a good competitive tennis player. Yeah, this is this is a really good good question. Um, I'm not a big one for gamesmanship at all. Uh, however, psychologically, you've got to be aware and you've got to know 
when somebody's trying to, in the UK, I will say, take the piss. So, you know, a recent example was Andy Murray with Sitsipas and the long toilet break. Now, that unsettled Andy, but he just didn't lay back there and take it. He actually said something about it and tried to put some pressure on the officials and everything like that to, to maybe do something different and put some pressure on Sissipas. It, it didn't work. And I think, uh, I think because Andy has obviously been out for so long, I think in the past he would have been able to use that as fuel to, to drive him forward. Uh, but he dropped serve very early on because he was irritated and annoyed. And then he was behind the eight ball and, uh, and, and really, you know, couldn't really get back in the match. Um, but he would have used that as, as fuel in the past and probably tried to this time, but, you know, uh, you know, hasn't had as many matches as he, as, as he would have liked. But it's really important to understand that, that if somebody is doing something that's bothering you, you need to do something to counteract it. Uh, unless you are genuinely calm about it and it doesn't bother you. Then stay calm and you know, be on board, never said a word about anything, and, and a trainer himself to be incredibly calm no matter what. Um, but if it's bothering you, you have to do something about it because otherwise you're immediately giving them the edge that they want to create. You're giving them what they want. So if you get irritated and annoyed and then, you know, don't play as well, like, you know, in the end of the day, you know, and I don't know this, but Sitsipas will, could be sitting there and going, well, yeah, the long break worked. And he came out irritated and I broke sir. So um, that's, that's really what I'm talking about in unsettling a person's mind. The other thing is, is, you know, making statements is really, really important in, in, in sport. So if somebody, I remember because both uh, Arvin Palmer and Barry Cowan had a famous five-set match against Sampras, and Arvin was a set and a break up against Sampras. It was, not, it was very rare. I don't know if I've ever seen it before, but Sampras dropped serve the first game of the second set against uh, Arvin, and on the changeover, he slammed his racket down on his bag. Uh, he, he was bothered. And, and, and what I said to those guys is, you know, especially on the, on the ad court, Sampras loved to serve down the tee. I said, give him the wide, move early, and hit the living hell out of that tee serve and try to hit winners. Because it doesn't matter, you know, I was a big server, and I said, it doesn't matter who you are. If you hit a great serve and somebody hits a clean winner, it hurts. And, and it rocks you. And... And so I think it's, 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 it's really important game-wise to make statements. You know, if somebody is, is, is taking a ball really early and, and, and really got you on the back foot, you know, serve volley a point, you know, take a couple early yourself and, and, and try to, you know, what I call bomb Berlin. I don't know if you know that story, but Churchill bomb Berlin. 
you know, out of nowhere, just to let the Germans know that there was a war on, because they didn't know there was a war on. You know, it would have been like, you know, Iraq bombing New York. You know, uh, it, it, it was such a surprise to Germans. But what it did is it unsettled Hitler and, and made him angry. And instead of bombing the airfields, he started bombing the cities to get revenge, which allowed Britain to get the planes in the air and, you know, was a big reason for turning the war because they could defend the skies. So, so, you know, there are times when you're losing where you need to bomb Berlin, you know, and, and, and take a risk and see if you can unsettle their rhythm, unsettle what they're doing. You know, I think uh, an, another good way of doing this is on return of serve, change your position. Go further back, go closer in, you know, take away one serve, you know, stand over, force them to hit the other one, stand over and move early for the other one. You know I mean? Just try to, you know, you know, mess with their mind so they can't just stand there and get in a great rhythm and just do what they're doing. Um, so that I think that's a big part of uh, unsettling opponents. Um, I don't know if you remember Dementieva playing um, uh, the French girl uh, at the U.S. Open. Gosh, Mary Pierce. Dementieva was killing her, and Mary Pierce called a trainer, lay down on court, got a nice massage. And you could see Dementia over at the back of the court fuming. And if she had just walked up and stood, you know, she's lying there nicely on the, on, on, on the floor and put her foot right near Mary Pierce's head and said to the umpire, you know, how long is this going to take? How long is she, you know, and she can feel a foot right there by her head. That's putting pressure on Pierce to hurry up and, and switching the, the mentality from, hey, I'm just chilling here and, and getting my head together and, and deciding what she's going to do, uh, suddenly she's under pressure as well and, and she's not going to be able to just have that time to, to think that straight. So, you know, it was really bothering to Mantieva, but she did nothing about it, came out, played poorly, Mary Pierce back in the match and, and, and wins the match. So, you know, the, there, you've got to be aware of what's going on there and, and if it's unsettling your mind, do something about it. And equally, if they're doing something, you know, or playing in a way that, that's really hurting you, try and do something to, to combat it. I hope that makes sense. No, perfect sense. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I, I really like that, that idea of, you know, in these sorts of situations, it's all about taking action and, you know, looking to do something yourself to maybe unsettle the opponent or to somehow respond in, in some way. Um, uh, an idea that I really liked um, from the book, and I, I, I love the analogies that you use. Um, and one of the analogies um, of the latter I really liked of, you know, going back to where you're talking about with that process and not, you know, not putting 120 uh, kilograms on the bar if you can only handle 60, but slowly working your way up and, you know, having that process to get there. And also thinking about the latter in terms of, um, you know, the, the, the each step along the way, you only have something to gain and that, you know, you, you, won't, you don't want to be constantly looking down from the ladder or thinking about the, other, you know, the others that didn't get to that rung that you're at. Um, can you talk a little bit more about this analogy and how this fits into the player development process? Yeah, I think I, I, I use the ladder up the side of a building analogy. 
and and that's really especially for 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 young players is you know first of all climb your own, own ladder and you know it's lots of fun you start off on your ladder at the bottom on the ground and you climb really fast and but suddenly you you know 40 yards up and you look down and you go oh not sure I want to fall from here. <laughs> and so you're going to be a little bit more cautious about how you climb, which is what, what happens, you know, <clears throat> to, you know, in sport you develop quite quickly as a youngster and you get pretty good. And then suddenly it's like, whoa, I'm pretty good and, and everything slows down. Um, but if you think about it, uh, the ladder is, what I say, is just about playing the game. So there'll be periods, you know, when, you, when you're climbing that ladder that you're going to go slower. Um, and also, you know, once you get maybe, you know, 150 yards up and, you, and you're, you know, very good um, and, you know, it starts getting windy or hail starts going or, or, or you know, it, it, it gets pretty cold and, and, and difficult, you, you're going to just want to hang on. You're not going to want to climb. You just kind of want to hang on. And and I think that's important that there are times in your development that you, you're doing work and nothing's happening. You, you just don't seem to be getting better. You're just hanging on. But remember, if you're hanging on, you're not going down. You're not getting worse. You're just staying where you are. And just work hard to get up the next run, however long it takes. Just get up the next run. And, you know, the sun will come out again and you can climb a little faster. And, and that's, you know, and then you, you make hay while the sun shines and then, you know, the different seasons hit and you, you have to adjust for the seasons. You know, in the winter, you're not going to be climbing at all or, or very, very slowly. And, you know, spring, you start feeling, you know, like better about things and, and can climb a little faster as well. And I think that's important that, you know, whether it's even in a match, if, if, if you're losing in a match, just play the game, you know, say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and get two points a game, you know, get to 30 every game and, and build from there, you know, or just, you know, try and just get one game on the board. And, and, and so you always have this target because even if you're getting killed, you know, six love, three love, you know, instead of being all down and, and depressed and feeling like this is terrible, I mean, like, you know what? This person is clearly better than I am. My job is just to win a game, fight for everything and win a game. And, and then you have a focus to gain something out of that match and, and you will be gaining something out of that match. So I think it's, it's important to always play to gain, even, even if it doesn't, doesn't go your way. I, I I don't know if that fully explains it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I yeah. I, as I was reading it, that analogy. Um, one one other thing is comparison. You know, if if you if you high up and you want to climb the next rung, tell me you're going to be able to climb the next rung at at, at two hundred and fifty yards in the air. If you if you're looking around at everybody and how they're going on their ladders. There's no way you can move a muscle. So remember, while you're comparing yourself to everybody else and how well they're doing, you're not doing the work yourself. 
focus on your ladder. Every now and again, stop, have a little survey of what everybody else is doing, and then back to your own ladder. And, and you know, the, the top of the game doesn't get better by yards. It gets better by millimeters. So it doesn't, you know, really matter. And this is something I've spoken to, to, to players about, you know, because age becomes a thing. Oh, you know, somebody, I'm not as good as they are and they're so much further ahead. I said, look, nobody cares if you get to the top of the game and it takes some people longer than others. But the important thing is to understand, keep going forward because it's easier now as you get closer to the top and McEnroe said it best, which is, you know, the hardest jump I ever had to make was from two to one. Because the differences have become so subtle and so small, you know, you got to do, you know, if you, if you do 10x of work in the beginning, you get 10x return. You know, get into the high levels, you do 10x of work and you get a millimeter return, you know, you know 0.01x return. So you got to do 20x to get, you know, one extra turn. Uh, because obviously, you know, the capabilities and the, and the, and the margins become smaller and smaller. Um, so, you know, you can, you can, you can take your time getting there or you can get there fast. Some people go very fast early, then they slow down. Some, you know, go fast in the middle, then slow down, you know, and you can see it, you know, through rankings, you know, players come very fast. Shapovalov, remember how fast he came and, and now he's kind of gotten a little stuck, you know, I mean, he's still a great player. But I'm sure, you know, he had aspirations and, and still does of being, you know, top five uh, or, or higher. And, and, you know, he's finding it a little more difficult to do that last bit. But he, you know, he flew through the, through the ranks, you know. And, and so this is, you know, everybody has their own speed and, and you, can't, you can't pretend that you're the same as anybody else. Yeah, the concept, David, reminds me of... Uh book by a guy named George Leonard Mastery and he talks about how you know plateaus are not necessarily a bad thing um, they're actually more natural and, and you know you're sort of describing that that you know there are going to be some plateaus maybe a Shapovalov just happens to be on one but if he continues to trust his process there will probably be a bump at a certain yes. point in time right and it's I think it's having the that knowledge again of trusting your process and knowing that hey plateaus are not a bad thing I'm not getting worse I'm just let me continue along that path. Um, toward the end of the book, you have a chapter by Louise Scott, who is a sports psychology professional, and she talks about the theoretical underpinnings of your your approach. And I, I really I like that chapter. So I'm so glad that you put that in there. And she mentioned how much of your approach comes from existential psychology and philosophy, which is not necessarily a, a commonly known branch of psychology. But really, very interesting. And, and a concept that's in there that I think applies even to the latter is this idea of courage and how perhaps even playing without fear is not a reasonable thing. It's really more how we apply courage to the fact that there is fear. Fear is not a, you know, fear is something or anxiety is something we can use in perhaps facilitative ways. And through courage, um, we can build confidence, we can. Um, continue to strive. I'd like for you, if, if you can, talk a little bit about how you use the concept of courage in player development and, and talk to your players about that. Yeah, uh, very perceptive. Um, 
really good question. I like it a lot. Um, the first thing I'd like to say is if there's no fear, there's no need for courage. The fact that there is fear means you need courage. So that, that is what it's, it's a perception people need to really get in their heads is it's easy to be courageous when you're winning and there's no fear, <laughs> but you're not being courageous <laughs> because you've got nothing to overcome. So in order to have courage, you have to have fear. And then you can start to talk about, okay, what do I need to do in certain situations when I'm afraid to show courage, to be brave? And this is, I would say, the biggest difference at all the levels. The best players in the world are the most courageous. When their whole body is screaming, I don't want to do this, they do it because they know it's, it's percentage-wise the, the best way to get a result. And when, when they play each other, it really usually comes down to courage who wins. That, you know, the sticking moments is, you know, who's going to just get a little bit too tight and, and not pull a trigger when they need to or not go forward when they need to and play a little bit safe. Now, of course, it's a really difficult balance because, you know, there are a lot of players who go a long way by playing safe in tight moments and the other players self-destruct. They, they try to be brave but don't execute. And so it's really tough and I think um, – for, for players that have had a lot of success by, by in those moments being brave enough to just keep the ball in the court, sometimes struggle to break to the very highest levels because they have a winning formula. And it works against most players, but not against the very best because when they pull the trigger, trigger on average, they make it more than they miss, and therefore, on average, they'll beat you more than they'll lose to you. So, uh, again, it comes down to, you know, being courageous, but also having the competence to execute uh, with courage. But, you know, it's, it's, it's the old Michael Jordan thing, you know, you know, I missed more shots than anybody else, because, you know, but I made the key ones because I'd taken more shots. He'd had more practice. You know, if you take the game-winning shot every game, uh, you might have, you know, had a game-winning shot, I don't know, 50 times in college, and you've taken all 50, you get into the pros, you know, and, and there's other guys there are trying to take that, that shot, and they only did 10 or 5 in their college career. Who's going to have a little more confidence? The person who's gone out and done it. Also, with the complete understanding that if you're taking the game-winning shot, you're probably only going to be successful like, you know, maybe 30 or 40% of the time. But that makes you a hero because everybody else is successful 10 or 5% of the time. So, you know, if, if you show courage 
you get better in those moments at executing with courage. And, and, and I always say to, to, to players, you have a choice. You know, you can play with fear and you will win and lose matches. Or you can play with courage and guess what? You'll win and lose matches. But which way is going to be more enjoyable and which way is developing your game to be more effective at a higher level? And that's a choice. And, and because I said the reason people don't show courage under pressure is because they want to win. And there's this idea that if I'm safe all the time under pressure, I've got a better chance of winning. But the reality is they will win and they will lose. But if you show courage, you will win and you will lose. And it doesn't matter how good you get, that never changes. So why not choose the one that's actually more fun and, 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 and easier to, to come off the corner and say, you know what, you know, I don't regret I had to go and, and, and I missed. And again, you know, it's, I'm not saying people go out there and just be wild and, and because that's not courage either, just to, you know, people often release on, on, on shots because they've had enough of a rally. You know, they just check out. That, that's not being brave. You know, that's checking out. It's about, you know, staying in a rally and then being able to pick the moment and when you know the moment's there, then actually go. Uh, and, and, and that's, you know, because, you, you know, I've obviously been around a lot of parents and junior tennis and you have the kids that just go for everything and there's this, oh, one day it'll all go in. No one. <laughs> that seems to be the American tennis philosophy back in like the 90s and early 2000s. Yeah, yeah. And, and no, it won't. You know, you, you, you've, you've got to be able to put the ball in the court and, and work a point to create an opportunity, you know. And, and you know, but from a young age, uh, I do like it that, that you have periods of play where you just allow people to be, very expressive and just go after things and that, and then, you know, slowly learn to, you know, <laughs> I suppose, marry the two together. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the, both, both pieces are, are pivotal, right? That, uh, as you, as you become a better and better player. Um, and, and another, another idea is just as from the book is this idea of, um, you know, not not trying too hard, not forcing too much, but you know, being able to let things happen a little bit, and and which I think definitely connects to that idea of of trusting the process, of knowing that you're doing, you know, doing the right steps, doing the right things on a day day in day out basis to get closer to your goals. Um, just wanted to see if you could, uh, you know, expand a little more on on that idea. Well, again, this past weekend. <laughs> And pour out one of the things that I say in the book, which is, you know, do the work and good things will happen. You just don't know when. And, and I think as human beings, when we work hard, there's an expectation that we should get a good result. And that's false. You know, it's, it's just really like making a decision. You know, you can make a good decision and get a bad outcome. 
you can make a bad decision and get a good outcome. You know, if, if, you know, if, if I said to you, go invest all of your money, everything you've got in Bitcoin, that a good decision? Everything you got, mortgage yourself to the hilt, put everything into Bitcoin. Is that a good decision? I don't think so. <laughs> no, I, I don't think anybody in their right mind would say it's a good decision. However, somebody does that and Bitcoin goes up, you know, to 150 grand and they, you know, they, they, they cash in and got, you know, 30 million. They'll say, what a great decision. <laughs> you know, but from a, from a poor decision, there, there was an amazing outcome, but it's just luck. And so, you know, it, 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 making a, a good decision is like deciding on a good process. And if you're on a good process, ultimately, you will land up with better outcomes. And if you keep making bad decisions, ultimately, you'll land up with worse outcomes. But that doesn't mean in the meantime, you want to have some very good outcomes. So you know, when, when, you're, when you're, you know, playing tennis and, and you... You're, you're sticking to good processes. Overall, things will get better. And, and that's, that's, that's a big trust. And we all as human beings tend to think that we're ready before we are. You know, get excited, worked hard, you know, ah, you know, and I'm beating these guys in practice, now I'm ready. Well, you go in the tournament and you don't. Uh, because you know you're you may be almost ready, and I, I would say this: there's a number of players that I've seen in, in 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 my history in tennis that I think have quit just before it's about to happen. They they you know they had a lot of resilience, and then finally they're like, oh, it's you know, and you know, and then sometimes you see they quit, and then they come back a little bit more relaxed, maybe six or nine months later, and then they they actually break through because they're just more relaxed about the whole process. So, you know, I, I hope that kind of explains that part. Yeah, that makes sense. So, David, as we're coming to the end here, I uh, would love to get your thoughts on, on Mindset College, or maybe why you put that together, and then how people can engage with that. We'll certainly put a link to the program in our in our show description and show notes. Um, but if you could talk a little bit about, you know, uh, how that's an expansion, perhaps, of locker room power and, and what you're doing with that. Yeah, well, uh, with Mindset College, uh, the book is part of the package uh, because obviously it's a, it is a big part of my philosophy. But what, what I, during lockdown, I had some time on my hands, <laughs> and, uh, but I'd already had in my mind to create an online program for for. I'd, I'd call it life skills with a competitive edge because I, I actually coach uh, a number of athletes from different sports and, and even some you know, people in, 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 in business now on mindset. And, uh, you know, I work with pro golfer, pro cricketers, uh, track athlete. Um, and, It's, it's very clear to me that if, if people haven't 
got a way of operating off the court that supports what they're trying to do on the court. It makes it very, very difficult as well. So, and if people's perceptions of a lot of life things and the way they communicate it or the way they receive uh, information and labels is another one that I tackle there, you know, to say, you know, that, you know, my backhand is crap. No, that backhand wasn't very good or that backhand was crap. Not my backhand, because that's a label. I've got a crap backhand. Well, where do you go from there? But, you know, listen, you know, my backhand is not as good as I'd like it to be. I'm not going to label myself as crap because I hit some good backhands. So, you know, uh, I, I want to get better at my backhand, but I will never say it's a bad backhand because that's a label. And I think, you know, labels are very good for us to be efficient, you know, that's a good restaurant. Everybody says good. You just trust it's a good restaurant. You don't want to research every single restaurant in the city. Um, so, you know, labels are have their place. But in terms of in, in sport, it doesn't. So what I did with Mindset College is take things like labeling, judgment, expectations, comparisons, um, you know, drama triangles. Because, you know, I've, I've also, you know, got a, a, a diploma from, Cal Berkeley in executive coaching. I have a mentoring diploma from the European Mentoring um, uh, uh, Society. And, and so, you know, there's theory behind all this stuff as well. But I try to make it very, very practical for athletes and coaches to, to take these concepts and run with them themselves. I'd say Mindset College is very, very powerful if people either do it to, together, you know, a couple of athletes do it together or a coach and an athlete because the coach will be able to see the athlete from the outside and personalize the messaging to their specific situations. And that's incredibly powerful. So, you know, if there's any coaches out there listening, it, this is not an instead of, this is an as well as, you know, you, you know, you, you will have a lot of skills, but what I can, do and what Mindset College will do is give you some perceptions that I'm pretty sure you wouldn't have heard all of them before and and therefore help you on this journey with your athlete. And for athletes, I think it will get them uh, very clear that, you know, off the court is is probably as important as, as on the court in the way that you understand life and understand the journey that you're that you're going on. I mean, I, I get into stuff like sweet suffering uh, because if you don't know how to suffer, uh, you're not, you're not going to be, you know, really good at anything. And, and, you know, and I've got the drowning analogy in there where, you know, how, how to, you know, deal with, you know, basically being drowned by opponents, you know, or, or, or drowning an opponent being able to keep them down under the water. You know, so it, these are analogies to just, give people a, a firm concept about what they're trying to do out there and also understanding, you know, tennis that, you know, I can find your player. I mean, I think the amazing stat is on the men's tour between 40 and 50, those players win 49% of their matches on average, you know, and, and you can find somebody at 250 at 500 and a thousand that are all winning 50% of their matches why they're ranked differently because tennis is about spurts. 
if you get on a good run, that's when your ranking can go up. And so you have a period where you're winning 65, 70% of your matches where you do the climbing, but then you hit the plateau because you're at a new level. And, and, and understanding that you're never going to get to the point where, where you're winning 70%, 75% of your matches, unless you Novak Djokovic or, you know, Federer and Nadal in, the, in their heydays. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's very few players that, that win that sort of percentage of, of matches. But even those players are only winning, you know, Djokovic on the best year ever won 57% of his points. So he's still losing 43% of his points. And on average, the number one in the world wins about 54% of their points. So you're know, <laughs> losing 46%. So, you know, losing in tennis is, is a huge part of the game. So, you know, and, and a lot of, you know, parents and, and players don't actually know this stuff. And, and, it, and it's really important because it puts things in a, in a better perspective and takes away some of the panic, which is, uh, you know, what, what I think I, I really like to do is that people, you know, tennis is such a wonderful game and sport is such a wonderful thing. If you're not enjoying it, you know, you have it so often. People come into sport, they love it, they love the competing, everything. then they get good and it's like, <gasps> now I've got to win. And suddenly all the enjoyment gets sucked out. And, and that kills it for them. And I think that's so sad because, you know, <laughs> nobody wins all the time. And, and, you know, especially with very young kids, I'll say, would you like to win every match? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, okay. I said, would you like to destroy the game of tennis? Uh, uh, what? I said, well, think about it. If you won every single match you played, eventually you'd be number one in the world. And then who's going to come and watch you when they know that every time you're going to win? So then people would just stop watching tennis. Nobody would pay to go watch tennis. And then tennis is finished. So you'd be responsible for killing the game of tennis if you won every single match. Is that what you want? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's just getting this idea that actually it is because you don't know what's going to happen that makes sport exciting. And, and you need to live with that and enjoy that and relish that, that, that challenge. Yeah, what I like about Mindset College, David, is it's a similar approach in some ways that I take is helping people develop a personal philosophy, which is really helping them create better ideas behind their thinking so that they can operate better in life and handle all these things. And, uh, um, you know, I think Mindset College is something everybody should should look into and we'll like I said we'll put in uh, a link in our in our show notes um, for that so would love David thank you so much for being with us today and we're, we're up against the clock here a little bit so um, thanks for being here we really appreciate it and uh, hope to keep in touch with you uh, you know in the future great and uh, maybe I'll come on again uh, <laughs> in, a, in a in a few months or a year see see where everybody's at yeah love to uh, but thank you very much and and you know the level of questioning was 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 very incisive and very good and i appreciate that it's uh it's time's gone quickly <laughs> thanks We've been so having much. fun right exactly i'm sure we could have talked for about six hours but uh you know we don't want to put people to sleep yeah and it's getting late there in the uk so we appreciate your time thank Great you talking well, that was an awesome conversation with David. Um, one of my biggest takeaways from that was about the 
the example of the latter that he explains in his book and that we discussed. Um, and what I really like about that is that uh, as you think about a ladder perched atop a tall building, um, you have a chance in each moment, at each stage along your athletic journey to try to reach that next stage. Um, if, if you don't reach there, you're still where you started. And I think it, it really is a good analogy for the athletic development process. But there may be times where you really see that progress and you're getting to that next stage and others where it feels that you've plateaued. But um, by keeping focused on just, just that next stage, not getting too ahead of yourself on trying to think about getting all the way to the end um, and not looking down and thinking about, you know, the, the others that aren't with you at, you know, at, at this stage in the journey or, um, you know, thinking about any regrets you may have just staying focused on that next stage or that next step in the ladder. That's the key to that consistent improvement and really focusing on that process rather than that outcome and, you know, and constantly thinking about that. So I really like that, um, analogy in the book. And uh, I thought that that particular part of the conversation was impactful for me. Yeah. And I think, um, if you think about the latter too, Josh, how many players, like if they, they have a poor performance or something, it's almost like they think they're going down the ladder and that's mm-hmm. really not the case. You don't go down like 10 rungs just because you had a bad match. Right. And I think this is sometimes where we maybe catastrophize things a little too much and, and so forth. So the idea of that ladder, right. And like you are where you are, and maybe it's one rung at a time or, or, or however you want to approach that. It's, it's a much um, better way of looking at it. So I thought that was cool. Um, I think the thing that I liked is sort of our ending conversation with respect to uh, courage and how courage is actually something that can help us deal with fear and anxiety um, in a better way. You know, how can we be brave enough to step up to a moment that perhaps, you know, has a little bit of pressure, has a little bit of anxiety. There may be some fear around that. Um, and I think, you know, there are there are a lot of people who talk about trying to play without fear. And I don't know that that's actually realistic or possible. I think there's always going to be some level of fear or anxiety. And, and perhaps it's even necessary that that exists, right? That that's actually what makes it important to you that there is a little bit of a level of fear or pressure or anxiety. And the way to deal with it is to be courageous, is to be brave. And so I think the more that we can cultivate courage and bravery as virtues within, you know, sporting performance, but also within our lives, I think the stronger it makes us in terms of some of the concepts we discussed, right? Self-belief, self-efficacy, and it drives your confidence. And perhaps you can even learn to make courage and bravery part of your process of what you do in specific moments and, and practice that, right? So I thought, you know, it was, it, I really enjoyed the conversation because we kind of, in a way, geeked out on some of these things, you know, at a, at a deeper level than, um, you know, than just talking about the book, right? I think we really dove went well into some of these these, these topics. And, uh, it was very, very enjoyable conversation, you know, with Dave and, and hopefully we can get him back on the podcast at some point and, uh, you know, discuss more even about what, what else he's up to these days. So, um, so with that, you know, again, many thanks to our guest, David Samuel. Um, and we want to thank you for listening, uh, for more on today's episode, please check out the show notes. We'll have links in there to, uh, Locker Room Power the uh, on Amazon as well as on Audible. 
Um, so please check that out. If you have any feedback or questions for me and Josh, please email us at tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use the Twitter hashtag tennisiq. Additionally, please subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice, including YouTube, so you can be notified of new episodes. You can also check us out on Instagram. Thanks again, and we'll speak with you soon in our next episode. Thank you.